Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit abyssbattery.com. All right, so Clay and I are sitting here and we're talking to Jessica Carew Craft. And Jessica, would you like to go ahead and introduce yourself for everyone listening? Sure. I am foremost a mom of two girls. I love to say that because that's definitely my most important and influential job. But I'm also a writer and I recently published uh, the book, Why We Need to Be Wild, One Woman's Quest for Ancient Human Answers to 21st Century Problems, which is the result of about five years of research looking into uh, folks and communities who have kind of left behind our contemporary technological uh, world in order to pursue primitive skills like the kind that you're doing. Um, and uh, it took me on lots of adventures, totally changed my life. I went from being like a tech consultant and overworked city res- resident to a uh, much more fulfilled and happy person who lives in the woods. Um, wow. And uh, yeah, so I continued to write i edit books and i spend a lot of time outside and doing wild activities and just trying to uh, increase my level of skill in terms of survival wilderness nature appreciation that sort of thing okay so i have read your book i don't know how much you want to talk about that i mean because you want people to read it we don't want to spoil it for them Um, right but i never realized how disconnected so many people were because the outdoors were always part of my life. I feel more disconnected now as I've gotten further in a career, but Mm. I've never realized, and Clay talks about this all the time, and he's probably the worst example of somebody to realize because he thinks that if people don't get at least four hours a day outside, that's bizarre (laughs) to him. He doesn't even understand that. (laughs) Because he spends so much time outside and he is his own boss. He does his own thing that he he does not even realize that people don't get outside. And he's told me that he's done certain things. He'll be working on a job site (laughs) at somebody's house and be like, these people haven't left their house other than to like go to the mailbox all day. Is that normal? (laughs) And I'm like, Clay, unfortunately it is, you know, that's, that's uh, become the norm. And 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 listening to you talk in your book about 
how far people were. I I don't think I realized either that that it the divide was even worse than I thought. Oh yeah, it is so bad. And I think, you know, we've got 80% of folks in the US living in kind of urban and suburban areas now. And it's kind of like necessitated by architecture. I mean, you guys must have access to land, right? And like the ability to be outside with some with some range to roam. But most people just have that postage stamp in front of their house if they have that, right? Living in these environments. And uh, and then they're programmed and conditioned to be in front of the screen. You know, for adults, it's, it's an average of 11 hours a day. So yeah, the statistics, the statistics are shocking. And it's a recent phenomenon that does not... Uh, you know, put us in the best space in terms of our physiology or our mental health or even our social relations, right? So it's just totally wrong and bad for us, but yet we're doing it uh, because we're kind of we're kind of enslaved. And like I said, we're programmed. Uh, and many of us with our jobs have to be in front of that screen or be inside in the office or be in that car, right? So there's only 4% of the day when like you said, people are checking their mail or they're <laughs> tending to something outside. I don't know. Yeah. But it's, it's really, it's a crisis. It's terrible. It's like the, well, Michael Easter's comfort crisis where he talks about how people go from one climate controlled environment to another. And the only time mm-hmm. they have the actual discomfort is walking between. And then mm-hmm. it's a, such a momentary thing, especially in the winter time that they don't even, uh, you know, their blood doesn't thicken in the wintertime. They don't adapt at all and they're constantly cold. And then they wonder why it's because they've never even given themselves that opportunity for that to happen. So they can't ever get comfortable in the natural environment and it disconnects them even further. It's, it's insane. Yes. Yeah, no, <laughs> what you're talking about is, uh, it's so important. It's a, it's a concept called hormesis, which is positive stress for the body. And it's things like getting that cold exposure, getting the uh, discomfort of like bare feet on uh, a rocky surface or extreme heat, you know, for short periods of time, or just anything that's kind of taxing your body, challenging you physically, taking you out of that 68 degree, uh, perfectly adjusted thermostat environment, right? And that's good for you. It's good for your cells. It's good for your circulation. It's, it's good for your mental toughness. So we're, we are lacking that. And, uh, What's cool is that when people wake up to that, then then they have more motivation. They're like, yeah, it's cool. I want to run around without my shirt on, you know, do the Wim Hof ice bath and <laughs> um, really challenge myself to have those conditions that all humans used to have because we lived outside. And then by doing that, like you're saying, you're more and more likely to spend that time outside. So. Yeah. And I'm outside now. Yay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> how, 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 cold, how cold are you right there? I'm not cold. I mean, like I told you, I'm I'm living in California. Yeah. Mid October. <laughs> it's probably 70, 72. Yeah. It's like sixty-five degrees. It's really okay. nice. Yeah. Oh wow. What are you at right now, Clay, temp wise? We are about forty degrees today. Oh wow. Okay. Um, yeah. Balmy so, uh, forty. Yeah. Well, <laughs> actually, probably my favorite temperature is forties. Yeah, you wear yeah, shorts in forties, so yeah, I love I love the forties. But um, Jessica, I wanted to ask you. So um, you're into the cold exposure, you say, right? And I, I've been into that for a very long time as well. And um, I actually was out in California filming for my YouTube channel like a little over a year ago, year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to take a cold shower, and I couldn't get any of the showers cold. 
Oh, because um, you know California, yeah. it's just just doesn't have. It, it's like all the water came out lukewarm, and I was oh so gosh. I was so disappointed. I was like, how do people take cold showers in this state? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man, those weak, wimpy, domesticated Californians. What are we gonna do with them? Yeah, <laughs> I know. Well, there's always the natural water, right? So. Yeah. Yeah, I love jumping into Jump the in lakes, the, and the streams, and the creeks. Oh yeah, the Pacific. It's usually fifty-four degrees. Yeah. So wow, that's yeah. Um, no, I had I had an experience where I was uh, working actually with Wim Hof on his next book. Oh, so wow. you know, being able to, you know, he's kind of a crazy dude. <laughs> it doesn't make perfect sense, but he's got this method that's really inspiring people. And uh, so it was sort of my job to make sure I did the method. You know, the breathing and the cold. Uh, immersion in the water every single day and that's been awesome so but i'm glad to hear you've been doing it for a while what is <clears> the <throat> recommended uh exposure time then i mean obviously you don't want to go too long but right hypothermia yeah um yeah no you're supposed to work up right so even if you're if you're starting with 20 seconds right and then you add kind of like 15 seconds for each shower or for each immersion um, ultimately getting up to at least two minutes in an ice bath or in that cold water is really good. And then I heard, uh, from Andrew Huberman, who has, uh, you know, have you guys heard of him? He's a neuroscientist mm -hmm. out of Stanford. He's got a podcast. His who research hasn't? showed, um, I think a lot of people, his research <laughs> showed that you need like 11 <laughs> minutes a week, uh, of the cold exposure, which really isn't when you're getting in the habit of it, like clay is, and he's like, Oh, the water isn't cold enough. Like I'm sure he's getting the recommended amount, but even, you know, even the 20 seconds can help somebody sort of get over that shock, uh, and, uh, get those, get the adrenaline running, get the positive immune benefits, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, you started your journey, um, by finding roadkill and that was like your, your segue into, but like, what was the driving force up to that point? To where you said, oh my gosh, I really need to start actually finding nature. Was it even that you, you thought you wanted to find nature, Jessica? Or was it, uh -huh. uh, I mean, what, what, was, what was the factor at that point that you're just like, oh my gosh, I hate my life. Where do I go? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think it was just working in the, the deadening um, Silicon Valley tech utopia where, you know, all these things were promised to us that there was, there was going to be a killer app to solve every human problem. And then um, looking around and seeing the irony and the contradiction in that, that these folks weren't healthy and happy who were working to develop uh, the killer apps and invest in, you know, the VCs investing in the startups. They were, you know, stressed out and anxious and not spending enough time with their families. Everything they did seemed to go against their natural instincts. And yet that was expected. Uh, there was no critique of it. It was just like, you got to keep going. You got to be available 14 hours a day. You have to be in the office. Otherwise the optics are bad. And as my, I saw my own health declining, I mean, not seriously, but just like mental health issues, anxiety, insomnia, um, way over caffeinated, um, and certainly missing out on that crucial time with my family and my friends. I was like, this is, this is terrible. And this isn't how human life has been or should be, which I knew because I had studied anthropology and was really familiar with traditional cultures and hunter-gatherer cultures where it's definitely not normal at all to lock yourself in a box and stare at a screen for 11 hours and uh, ignore all your bodily needs. So that, you know, the kind of epiphany, it happens in the book. I won't spoil it, but um, it really came from that 
you know, realizing that tech was, was selling us a false promise and it wasn't, wasn't going to solve our problems. Um, and that there was a proven way to live that was happy and healthy. And that was a life close to nature, which is getting harder and harder and more difficult to do in our contemporary scene these days. And so I really had to, um, you know, I had to say goodbye to certain friendships. I had to give up a lot of subscriptions. I had to ultimately give up my, um, my domestic situation with my husband at the time, right. To kind of seek a wilder life. And, uh, yeah. So nature immersion was, was key to that learning my local ecosystem, learning to feel comfortable outside, no matter what the conditions are, like we were talking about and, uh, understanding how native people from my region would survive and what materials they'd use and what foods they'd seek. All of that, uh, really influenced me. And the, the incident of the roadkill that I begin the, the book with, happened because I had just attended a primitive skills gathering where for the first time in my life, you know, you guys are hunters, you've seen this. I had seen people processing animals and that, that was not uh, something I'd ever seen before. And it was inspiring to me if, if a little off-putting and grody, you know, I was mm -hmm. like, really, I have to run this draw knife against this, this these, str these fleshy strings on this hide. And, and then I can have this beautiful leather. So it was, you know, overcoming those, um, those kind of cultural taboos, but, uh, but being really excited about like, Oh my God, there's all these animals who are destroyed because of our fast moving, uh, civilization on these roadways. And so the first roadkill Fox I saw, I was like, I got to get this thing and I got to try to work with it and redeem its life. Yeah. I just lost the Fox pelt. My freezer took a, took a dump and that was one of the things I lost that was in there that I had that been in there for about four years I planned on doing something with it and never oh, got around no. to it yeah yeah unfortunate but it's okay I mean it was the the birds and everything else picked the carcass so it wasn't like it was totally wasted and it right it was eliminated from killing my chickens at the time so it was okay yeah. okay win-win but now yeah, yeah. Oh, bummer yeah but so no stole or anything cool although i do have this nice coyote pelt here that hey feels good on the it. yeah <laughs> um so yeah i mean you, you talk about the driving stuff and the technology and uh clay i know this kind of scares you a little bit too but like the advancement of it and how fast it's moving and where it's going and how much people rely on it is mm -hmm. absolutely absurd to me. And recently I was driving home. I was just in Indianapolis and I was driving home from Indianapolis and didn't use any navigation because I was like, I know I can do this and mm -hmm. um, <laughs> pulled out of a gas station. And my wife goes, are you sure you went the right way? I go, well, I pulled in and the gas station was on the right side of me. So when I pull out, if it's still on the right side of me, I'm good to go. <laughs> and and I go, do you not know where you're going at all? And she goes, no, I just look at my GPS. And it made me think like, uh... holy crap, this is so bad that people can't naturally navigate anymore. And I know Clay is huge into natural navigation. Yeah. Do you... Well, I, I, would, yeah. I would also say um, that to further demonstrate you your map skills with mine um i one time drove all the way to my mother's house in the adirondacks with nothing just road signs and i live in northern michigan so um nice uh, yeah and um <laughs> i i can't I, I was actually blown away that like some people find it so hard to even make it around the town that i live in yeah you know it's yep. true yeah 
what was your experience with that with navigation and stuff? I mean, was it that bad? Were you that reliant or or was it something that you never let get away from you completely? Yeah, so much to say with this one. Um, and I, I just have to note that, you know, neuroscientists have looked at this and we're actually using losing the gray matter for spatial awareness as <laughs> we become more reliant on these technologies. And, uh, you know, they do. They do studies of, you've probably heard of this, the London cab drivers who they have like increased larger hippocampus than um, folks who don't have to navigate every day. So, you know, when we're losing these skills and giving it up to technology, it does have an impact on our physiology, which is kind of scary because it's like, can you get that back? (laughs) Can you regain that skill? Um, And, you know, I'm of the age, I don't know about you guys, but, you know, it was all map, paper maps. Mm -hmm. And knowing where you are when I learned to navigate and drive a car and Mm -hmm. uh, get around. So, you know, and I know, so I've watched it in my lifetime and I've seen the habit develop with myself. And I like that you're both challenging yourselves to, I mean, it sounds like Clay, you're probably looking at the direction of the sun to to figure out which way to go (laughs) to your mom's house. Um, You know, I think that's, that's important. Like we need to kind of gamify that if we're going to get this next generation to, to even know how to do anything without their phones, we're going to have to challenge them. Like, can you find your way uh, Mm -hmm. to the library or the grocery store or grandma's house without using the phone? Then some people say, oh, well, just using the phone to know what time I'm going to arrive or, you know, figure out the traffic situation. But um, it's undeniable that it's also telling you exactly where to go on a route that you did not think of. So you're not spending that mental mental energy to to get there. Um, and I'm I'm working on it. Like I'm not a person who has a naturally good sense of direction, but the more I learn about the clues that are available to us, you know, like uh, in my part of the United States, all satellite dishes point to the southeast. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, e- even in the urban environment, there are so many clues as to where to go. Uh, mm-hmm. And especially in the natural environment, right? When you learn about, um, you know, the the flowers that respond to the sun or on what side of the tree the lichen grows the most, um, or even, yeah, using the sun to navigate and understanding what time it is by its relative position in the sky. These things, you know, all humans used to know that, not the satellite dishes, but all humans used to know how to get around. Um, and there were so many creative, inventive ways to um, to figure out how to go somewhere, like singing a song, you know, and the length of the song. And then mm. the lyrics of the song point out uh, landmarks that you should witness when you get to that point in the song. Mm. So it's it's not like humans don't use technology to navigate. Um, we we certainly had those kind of like oral traditions and uh, legends that helped us do so. But now this digital reliance, I think, is really scary, and uh, and leaves us, you know, when the power's out, when your phone battery's dead, like how do you get where you're going? You can't. <laughs> But you can. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I actually have this. Um, you were just talking, I, I think, about Aborigines in Australia. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, I had, I've had i read actually a lot. Uh, are you familiar with Tristan Gooley? Oh, yeah. He's awesome. Yeah, yeah so um, I've read like all of his books. I think they're absolutely fascinating. And um, his work with directions and things like that is, is pretty amazing. But one thing that struck me was um, how... Many indigenous people, especially in Aboriginal Australia, they will always know which direction they're facing. Mm-hmm. Like, like when asked at any given time, you can just walk up to them. They could be in a dark room. Which direction are you facing? They'll always say with precise, you know, oh, I'm facing the south, <laughs> you know, 
or whatever. Um, and, and and then going back to that, me and you probably see the world in our mind as a map. Um, how do you think that people in the past would have seen the world without that map view that like I kind of have in my head? Oh. Yeah, that's a cool question. It, it brings to mind um, some ethnographic details, like, and you're talking about the, um, the Aboriginals being able to tell what direction it is. Directions are a, an abstraction, a concept kind of brought about by civilization. So I think if they were asked uh, 200 years ago, what direction are you? It would be in relation to a, a natural feature, right? So mm -hmm. like in the Amazon, a lot of the uh, indigenous hunter-gatherer tribes, they relate to everything, even inside their houses, even on their bodies, as it's upriver or it's downriver. Hmm. Right. So, so there's no left or right. It's like, OK, if, if it's left and the river's on your right, then left is upriver. You know, it's like that. <laughs> oh, wow. And uh, and then, you know, well, where can I find that cooking pot? Oh, it's upriver in the kitchen. Um, <laughs> so I think that they they have. You know, it isn't that two dimensional idea. It isn't the idea of like a, a plot. It's this idea of where am I in space in relation to that landmark? Hmm. Uh, where am I in relation to the sacred rock or, you know, the, the place our hunting grounds or whatever. And I think that's actually more functional because honestly, what does South have to do with anything that yeah. I'm doing? I mean, South mm -hmm. is just an abstraction, but, yeah. um, but the Creek behind my house, that has everything to do with everything where I'm going to find animals, where I'm going to get hydrated, where I'm going to, you know, wash. Like, so it, it totally makes sense. That, you know, in our in our civilization now where abstraction is is basically how we think all the time that we've done that to directions and and it didn't used to be that way. Yeah. Wow. So I don't necessarily have trouble navigating during the daytime, but nighttime navigation when I am in the woods and speaking of the Aborigines, I don't know how they do their night walks that I, I do not get that because yeah. I have the hardest time. And and I I try it to not use my headlamp as much as possible. I had a buddy that we would go hunting, and he'd always yell at me and be like, "Turn that darn thing off!" He's like, Good. "Let your yeah. eyes adjust. You'll be yeah. fine." And he's like, <laughs> "We're walking on rocks. They're white. They stand out. Follow the rocks. The light reflects off of them." And he'd just like say all these little things to me all the time. And finally, I was like, "You know what? You're right." And so, I don't like to spook game. Uh, when I'm going out, there's been times where I've walked right up onto deer at nighttime in, or, you know, going in the dark into a tree stand and actually like stop for a second. I'm like, I could smell it. I'm on top of them. They're bedded wow. right next to me and they're not getting up. Like the wind was right. They didn't care. I wasn't a threat. I didn't scare them yeah. off. And oh my gosh. I'm like, well, I'm still getting in that tree, whether they're bedded there or not, you know, and they'd take off in the like early before, you know, it was enough light that I could see them. And then they'd come right back to that bedding area. It was crazy. But um, getting out at night, sometimes I have the hardest time and I'm not going to lie. I love my technology then, or at least a flashlight, because there's been times where I tried to navigate out and all of a sudden I hear water rushing and I'm like, I just went a half mile in the wrong direction. I'm oh, trying crap. to go away from the river, not towards it. <laughs> so, wow. Uh, yeah. What do you do, Clay? Do you navigate at night? Do you try it? Um, I don't. I mean, I've definitely walked through the woods at night. Um, yeah. But, you know, what I think is funny, and this is just not, not night related, but um, oftentimes 
my sense of direction is is totally perfect and then people that are with you will instill doubt in your head oh like you, the one time go, i did and i'm like no that tree stands over there like that time yeah and the, and the, and then you you whip out your phone and because you're like well maybe i am going the wrong way and then and then you look and you're like no i'm going the, the right way we were headed to a fence line jessica and okay. i pointed <laughs> over here and it was right there so okay <laughs> Well, he won't let you forget that. No, he <laughs> won't. He just, yeah, you threw it in my face. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I yeah, think, your I sense of direction. Nighttime, I don't really, I don't, I, I don't know. I don't mean to be gendered here. Like going out into the dark is not my favorite thing to do as a woman, <laughs> no matter where I am. Um, so yeah, it, it, and I do think we've lost a lot of that night vision that we're like permanently handicapped by all these artificial lights and blue lights and Ugh, the fact but... that we didn't grow up navigating in the dark. Like for me, I feel like this is kind of a lost skill. It's not like I did consult a, an eye specialist one time and they're like, no, 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 you can take um, walks late at night, you know, go out for an hour and your pupils will dilate in ways that like you've never experienced before and you will start to see things. So apparently we can regain our sort of um, innate night vision abilities. Wow. But then, you know, um, I had magnetite implanted in my brain. So, I, you know, it's great. No, just kidding. <laughs> we, all, we, all do, we all do have apparently some um, magnetic, you know, metal in our, in our brain cells and the prefrontal cortex. So, you know, and scientists are still looking into this. I think it's fascinating. Like, and some people must have more. Like, Clay, you just, you can find it. Um, <laughs> who knows who knows what's lurking there under your skull but yeah mm. it, like homing pigeons like all these other animals that navigate more like how do they know where to go and how exactly to follow the same migratory route that their ancestors took and they didn't even meet them they weren't even trained um, so there's something going on there with us and the magnetic poles but in terms of night you know like indigenous groups like the full moon Right. Like that's the night to get out and party. That's the night to, to go on the hunts. Um, go find and a then the new moon. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I said that in my book. Yeah, 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 exactly. So women, <laughs> women's fertility sometimes corresponds to the full moon. So maybe they're ovulating on the full moon because that's when she's more likely to go out at night and feel comfortable doing that. Yeah. It's mm. fascinating. <laughs> yeah. So uh, one thing my grandparents always used to use compass directions for everything. And no matter when they lived in their farmhouse or when they moved into town and retired, it did not matter. Everything was compass direction. And he'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, and he'd know, just like you said, Clay, what direction he was facing. And honestly, I think the fact that they were uh, like, I think they were like Boonesboro settlers, like they've been there so long that it was (laughs) just there and they knew. No Mm -hmm. joke. They were there so long they didn't know when they got there wow (laughs) my dad asked him one time well where do you think he came from and he goes well i don't know i I think maybe we're british that was it that was (laughs) well how'd you get here well the neighbor wandered over and met my mom and that was that like (laughs) oh my gosh but so like but his, his compass direction was always spot on and he i mean he knew every inch of that land it's crazy wow so Jessica, I have a question for you, uh, veering off in a different direction. Um, I have, what direction? I have, what direction have, are we going? <laughs> <laughs> we're going southeast. No, um, okay. I, I have um, 
kids. You had you said you have two daughters. Yeah. Um, your change into this primitive skills lifestyle and foraging, um, how are they uh, appreciating it? Yeah. Well, they were younger when I started the adventure. They were like six and nine. And it mm. was super easy to get them excited at that stage of life. And it was pre-COVID. So mm. they hadn't been um, programmed and accustomed to staying inside and being on screens. So at that point in time, you know, nature was just like wonder and discovery and uh, meeting friends at these gatherings that we go to. And I think there was also some joy in learning together. So the first goat hide that I processed, the kids and I made a drum out of it, you know, and it was just like, oh, now we can make music and have a dance party. And just it just tried to apply it always to their interests and give them something to talk about that their friends might not have been doing. Mm -hmm. And I think as they age and as we went through the lockdowns and the pandemic, um, their interests kind of waned, right? And, uh, whereas for me, it kind of got stronger. I was like, I need nature even more mm -hmm. now. And now that they're 10 and 14, I'm really glad that they have a basis. Like they're good naturalists. Like I always make sure to take them out uh, a couple times a week, you know, and we talk about the plants we're seeing and what berries are in season and like look at animal tracks and they still have it. And I, I feel like it's a lifelong skill, mm -hmm. uh, especially for this ecosystem. And I hope that they would know how to adjust to a new ecosystem and learn the plants and, you know, understand what's going on around them. But, uh, but I've learned, I can't, you know, I can't, I can't make them the, uh, the Heidi and the Tom Sawyer characters that, you know, maybe I would want them to be at this point. Like they're really fascinated by old movies and fashion and television shows. And, uh, you know, we live in these two worlds, right? Like mm -hmm. I can't deprive them of the joy and sociality of pop culture and all this fun stuff that they're learning and they want to be creators. Uh, so I relish that. I think it's great, but then I'm always like, okay, at least we've got this basis and we have these family uh, rituals of being out in nature and foraging together. And I'm always trying to get them to eat more of the wild food that I collect. So um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting struggle. <laughs> what do you, what do mm -hmm. you experience with your kids? How old are they? Well, I have a 13 year old, a 10 year old and a four year old. Uh -huh. And um, the, they've all grown up since like day one, you know, I've been foraging for 17 18 years now nice and uh yeah so they um they've all grown up with it since day one so actually they're very used to it um now like yep. my my son's rebellion is like um uh, i don't like wild rice i like white rice you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> and, uh, and then like my my daughter my middle one she never wants to go in the woods she like complains about it oh we're gonna go for a hike how boring you know and then she gets mm. out there and she has a blast the littlest so, one um, or no um, that's willow oh yeah, so, yeah. Um, okay. yeah the littlest one lily she she loves going for what hikes in the woods but you know she uh, wants to be picked up about mm -hmm. 10 minutes in so. yeah yeah i've got three and uh the oldest one isn't as into it but I think it's honestly because I didn't start my journey until she was already like five, maybe. But yeah. mm -hmm. the the six-year-old and the four-year-old, they absolutely love it, especially the six-year-old. She mm. and, and what's funny is they all know more than I ever did in almost all of my life, right? That yeah. at their age, they know so, great. so much more than I ever knew. And they pick up yeah. on it so fast. It's that... 
you know, that tactile sense of learning where they, I, I take them and let them touch it and feel it. And they, they get that relationship with it. And all of a sudden they, they, you know, almost form a bond with it. And so my six-year-old, she loves chicory. Just, she <laughs> thinks it's beautiful, has this fascination with it. And she's like, dad, look, there's still chicory out here in the yard. She found like the <laughs> oh. one remaining one that was still blooming and she just loved yeah. it, you know? And so she'll take, <laughs> like cool. if other kids yes. come over, she'll take them on plant walks and, and be like, this is this, this is this. And she's like, I don't really remember what it does. I know you can <laughs> eat it, but there's all their stuff to it, you know, and just try and like, you know, she tries to think of the medicinal properties and stuff and can't always remember, but I mean, it's still there and it's awesome. And then the little guy, he'll just I love go that. around. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's fun. Little herbalist. Nice. Yeah, I hope she does. I hope she does become an herbalist, naturalist, something that's in her wheelhouse yeah. for sure. Yeah, yep. I have my kids are like when when we talk about it, they're they're like kind of bloodthirsty. <laughs> they want to have, <laughs> yeah, they want to have the experience again of, um, yeah, like processing ducks and chickens and quail and rabbits, like stuff that we were able to do. So we're looking for ways to to get more of that animal processing into their lives, which is great. So do you guys wow, live cool. anywhere near Catalina Island? After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers. If we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan, for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash waypoint. That's mintmobile.com slash waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash waypoint. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Eating better is easy with Factors delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, which is the one I like, and Keto. Get started today and get after your goals. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 and use the code waypointpod50 to get 50% off. That's waypointpod50 at factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 to get 50% off. No, that's Southern, yeah, Southern California. California. What, okay. Yeah, what happens there? Well, pretty soon what's going to happen is they're going to call the entire herd with helicopters and sharpshooters and just eradicate the deer from the island, even though they have more than enough to sustain themselves. But apparently because they weren't native to the island, they don't want them there mm. anymore. But it's a great oh. opportunity, and it was an over-the-counter tag to hunt and I mean, you're on an island, it's a huge island, but nonetheless, you're on right. an island. If you work hard enough, you're guaranteed to get one. Right. And, and now it's going to go, go away. I, I know. So, 
it's kind of sad to see. But I was going to say, if you are, now's your opportunity. <laughs> go get a tag. No, that's and super go get interesting. One. Yeah. yeah, thanks yeah. for that. I'd love to look into that. Really cool. I mean, yeah. Hmm. So have you had an interest in hunting yet and just haven't uh, pursued it? Or you're not there yet in your journey? Yeah, I am. I am definitely interested. And I want, um, I definitely want to start with bow. So I, I have a target practice set up, but I do have a bow. And it's like, oh my God, releasing a book does not leave you with a lot of free time during hunting season. <laughs> so it's not yeah. happening this year, but hopefully next year. So when you say bow, are you talking compound or are you actually primitive? Is it a self bow? Did you make it yourself? It is a compound bow. Okay. Yeah. That's a good thing. I think everybody should start with that or at least get a kill with a crossbow just to make it happen. And that way they yeah. can process those emotions and get through all that. I never realized. So this is kind of funny, but taking friends hunting, Clay was with me on this journey and um, we took some friends while boar hunting. And nice. one of my friends had never killed before and really wanted to, and he did. And afterwards I started just talking to him and explaining like what we were going to do. And he goes, give me a minute. I was like, <laughs> okay. And I just, mm-hmm. I respected it. Cause I, I didn't think about it. I just started talking like, Hey, let's, you know, get the knife. And we're going to process it. And he just needed a minute or two to process it in his own head and to deal with those emotions that he'd never felt before. He'd never yeah, felt the yeah. emotions of taking a life other than maybe right. like an insect or something, you know? Um, it was it was bizarre to me at first because I never thought about that. As a kid, I grew up hunting. I never killed mm-hmm. big game, but there was always squirrels. There was always um, doves was a big thing. My dad would always take me dove hunting and pheasant hunting. So there was still that death and that element. There was always a reverence for the animal and a respect, and we ate it and all these different things. But I never thought about that until he said that to me, and I was like, holy cow. Mm. Never even thought about it. <laughs> And how did the moment go for him? What did he get out of it? Good. It felt good. He he just, I'd never taken a life. He's like, I, I, I've never processed that emotion before. I needed a minute yeah. or two to just realize, okay, I did this. It's not a bad thing I did this because one, I'm helping out the local economy because there is a trapper that's trapping them and bring them to this place where we're hunting them. So, you know, we're putting money in the economy. We're eliminating an invasive species that is doing degradation to, you know, different things. And so he's like, it's not a bad thing. I just had to force myself to realize that, that it wasn't like a life wasted. It was a, it was a a resource gained. And I was like, Mm. okay, all right. I understand that. And I respect that. I was like, now do you want to break it down? (laughs) And then, of course, he did, you know, but it was, it was pretty cool to just, just watch that and witness it because I'd never seen that before. Um, and like, I didn't even have any mentors when I first started hunting. It was just, mm. um, I mean, like small game and stuff. But when it came to deer, my dad didn't deer hunt. He wasn't a deer hunter. So that was on me. It actually took me like four or five years before I finally killed a deer yeah. with a bow. And then it was like that feeling was just elation and then, <laughs> yeah, and then exactly and then the next year i think uh i doubled up and i killed two and i dropped an arrow on the way up into a tree stand that morning and i would have had three deer all in one sitting whoa. and i was like whoa this is so cool and then i was hooked and now it's like i've become a junkie and i i take vacation <laughs> from work to do those things to just mm-hmm. pursue and chase them and chase in the rut and now i 
my thing is uh, this year I'm not running any cameras at all. I don't want to. I don't want to know what's out there. I feel like it's a disadvantage mm-hmm. to that animal. Um, and the other part of that, it's not just a disadvantage. It sounds really good when I say that. But I get fixated on something. So I see a deer and I get so hooked on that one animal that I want to pursue it, that I waste other opportunities if I would just go out there and seek something out. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's, it's definitely changed. The dynamic has changed for me. So this year I didn't put out a single camera. I didn't scout. I didn't look at any properties whatsoever. I'm going to go into every spot blind and just experience wow. it and see what happens. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It sounds like you're kind of re-indigenizing your hunting. I'm still using yeah. a modern compound bow. I have killed with a longbow, though, and wooden arrows that wow. I made myself. So <laughs> I do have that. Never stone All points, props. though. No stone points. All props. Amazing, though. Still. Yeah, you mentioned the author Michael Easter earlier mm-hmm. and the comfort crisis. And he has a new book out called Scarcity Brain. Scarcity Brain, yep. Yeah, I totally recommend it. I mean, he's not, he's not really... Uh, well, he's not a primitivist or a rewilder, and he, he tends to be kind of domesticated in his views, in my opinion. But he uh, talks about this idea that, like, something you work really hard at, you have so much more gratitude and so much more appreciation for it. So that idea that, like, it took you, what, four or five years? Yep, yep. Right? So to finally get that with the bow, I mean, that is, that's, that's like winning an Olympic medal, right? It's this thing that you just really sought and, uh, and now you totally appreciated it with your full being. And we have so few experiences like that now in this comfortable, convenient world where we work, we have to work at something for even, you know, days that doesn't happen anymore. It's all a swipe. It's all a push. It's all a send. Instant gratification is like the worst thing that could have ever happened to man, <laughs> which actually changed our brain patterns. Right. So yeah. I mean... <laughs> yeah. The dopamine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So no, that's super cool that you're doing that slow hunting and that you're going to do it kind of unaided this year and best of luck. You're just doing it just like me, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> only better you, you'll never get to clay's level obviously no, 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 oh no, not no, with no. not with hunting clay so no. i am the hunter of the podcast clay is the forager we uh mm-hmm. clay i love you buddy yeah, I, but uh no, 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 not, you can say it it's fine he frustrates me frequently with with the hunting stuff uh-huh <laughs> um no, he's I, a better I, yeah. he's a better gatherer we will say I'm a better small game hunter. Oh, you think so, huh? No, no, no. I mean, I mean, no, no, no. I said no. I mean, I'm better. Yeah, than that big game. Yeah, yeah. My thing is though, if I can kill, and we've talked about this multiple times, if I can kill one animal that feeds me for a month, versus have to take time to shoot like 50 squirrels and save them up in the freezer to where I can make, you know one batch of hand pies and one pot of stew, what am I going to do? <laughs> Jessica, do you, have you ever trapped anything yet? Um, I have attempted to make primitive traps that have never yielded me anything, but it was wow. a fun experiment. <laughs> so when you say primitive, like deadfall, snare, yes. basket, Figure uh, four, trap, squirrel stick. Um, have you ever seen one of those? No. So the, I don't even know how to make one, but I've seen people talk about them and how successful they are with them. And a squirrel stick, somehow there's food or something on the squirrel and the squirrel jumps on it and either impales themselves or when it comes up, it gets caught 
and all these squirrels get just trapped on this stick and it piques the curiosity of other squirrels and they'll get like four or five squirrels on this stick wow no way a yes. little squirrel kebab yeah okay have you, have you ever heard of one clay no i haven't okay that sounds amazing yeah. so you got to look up squirrel stick now um i've never seen any plans for it because i guess maybe it's highly illegal i don't know but oh shit yeah, yeah. Sounds, yeah. Like a, sounds like a colony trap for muskrats nice very nice you know what a col- you know what a colony trap is no but just the name oh, okay. gives me the idea that it draws yeah. one in and the rest go and try and yeah. save them yeah it, it's just a it's just a cage it's like a, it's like a have a heart except for um both cage sides are angled in and so the muskrat swims in cage goes up and then closes and just gets stuck in the cage and then you know they can fill in from both directions you're just putting the cage in their runs mm. wow that sounds yeah pretty fruitful yep it's very fruitful <laughs> yeah so but how... no, it's interesting you're i just want to say your specialties are kind of like mimicking the process of human evolution right so like clays with the foraging and the small game and then it's like oh no we we, we can maximize our efficiency <laughs> grow as a, as a people if we get this bigger game so we need to evolve a way to hunt this big game and yeah it's kind of it's funny but they're all strategies for survival that still work yeah so. it, it thrills me more though like Going and, mm. and so Clay still doesn't believe me that a squirrel call works or or <laughs> draws them to where like I'm not joking, Clay. A squirrel call will get them to just start flicking their tail like crazy and chirping. You blast one, you wait like four minutes, hit the squirrel call again. They've already forgotten because they have ADD brain, just like I do. And they're like, Oh hey, what was that? Oh, another squirrel again? Squirrel. And then boom, you blast another one. It works. And he doesn't, uh, he's like, oh, a squirrel, what do you need that for? I just keep walking and get another one. But now uh, he's got a squirrel dog. But um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, to me, it's just like, I want that challenge of trying to chase that deer and get something that is more, uh, more of a challenge than just barking, mm-hmm. barking with my little squirrel call and getting mm-hmm. squirrels to bark back at me and shooting them. Um, maybe, you, know, you know, you need to do this year, Luke, hmm. is stock deer i that's what i was trying to do when i almost drowned myself this time (laughs) different we'll talk about that on the maybe on the update next week but um yeah yeah no i will i will i've stocked up on a deer and shot one with a longbow before that happened and that was the one Mm. where i put the bad shot and i laid the longbow down that was when i laid the longbow down and went back to the compound bow because i felt guilty that i didn't have enough time to dedicate that I didn't feel as proficient as I should. Mm. And, and the thing that haunted me was I went and looked the next day and all night for that deer, and I found her in the bed, and she was wounded, but mm. it was a, I hit her in the scalpula. And mm. I didn't even penetrate the scalpula. I was only shooting a 45-pound longbow, and it, mm. the, the broadhead didn't even go through the scalpula, and it hit her, but whatever it did, it mm. did nerve damage, and... And I'm guessing um, some type of arterial damage, too, because her leg shriveled up and was hanging. And I felt horrible. <gasps> oh, God. And I saw her the next two years and never got close enough to ever put her down. Wow. Ooh, yeah. Right. So that haunted me. And I still think about that and that bad shot. 
And because of that, I shoot heavy arrows. I shoot single bevel, non-mechanical mm. broadheads. And I know that a scalpula will never stop one of my arrows with my compound bow. In fact, I've blown through both of them in a deer. And, wow. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> like, end of story. And the arrow still went, you know, 30 feet behind that deer. I mean, now I have wow. enough power to where that's, that's that'll never happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, speaking of force, um, one thing that definitely hits a deer with a lot of force is a car. Now, uh, yes. Jessica, you uh, are into roadkill. Expl <laughs> explain your roadkill thing. Is this just for hides or is this for eating purposes? What is this? Yeah, I mean, well, you got to be careful about it. But uh, clearly, if it's a fresh kill, then for both. But yeah, mm -hmm. I, I described my first time doing that. And um, what was interesting was like, you know, for, for women manipulating the body of a male deer is a little bit different because mm -hmm. uh for instance it was really really tough for me to drag it across the highway get it into my trunk it took about half mm -hmm. an hour while i'm oh, kind okay. of nervously scanning for the sheriff which never came which was great um <laughs> and then you know i couldn't tripod it because i was alone so I had to you know process it by flipping it back and forth mm -hmm. um and then you know it was interesting because uh, I hadn't been trained on how to butcher. So my butchering was butchering, right? <laughs> it was like, let's just get the meat off this animal. Um, but I would, but it was a su successful project. And I had like 50 to 60 pounds of meat for, for the freezer for the winter. Uh, wow. That was totally free that I didn't expend any effort to kill. I was just opportunistic when I saw it um, on the highway. And yeah, no, for me, I just, I kind of wish there was like a system of distribution for these, you know, there's a million mammals apparently that die on our American roads every day. Uh, not all of them are edible or even desirable, but, you know, it is such a huge waste. You know, it's akin mm -hmm. to like some kind of factory farming mm -hmm. bounty. Um, could be feeding people, could be feeding, you know, any any organism. But we just kind of let them rot on the road. Um, yeah. So, so in the abstract, you know, it, it kind of makes rational sense uh, to be able to take those animals and have a system of distribution for them, you know, permits, tags, whatever. But, but right now, it's mostly illegal across the U.S., which right. I think is uh, will will change and should be remedied. Um, That's illegal, huh? By you, it's illegal. Yeah, it's it's kind of uh, I haven't looked it up in 2023. When I wrote the book, the laws were changing, so I'm not quite sure. So most <laughs> really states, care. yeah, most <laughs> states in the Midwest, they allow you to get a salvage tag. Um, yep. Yeah, you call the Department of Natural Resources or Fish and Wildlife, whoever is the department that governs the wildlife in your state, and you can actually get a salvage tag, which is fairly simple or easy to get. Sometimes it's even just, hey, take a piece of paper and electrical tape it to it, put this number on it. And that way, at least when you get it home, you keep this number. And if somebody questions it, you have that. And that says that we right. allowed you to take it. Um, so that's it, unfortunate. And how, how many people do you think are using that? Like, what's your understanding of how common it is? Quite a few. Quite a few. It depends. So my question to you before we get into that would be, how do you identify it and know it's safe to actually take or eat? Yeah. Hmm. Well, how do you know any meat is good? You use your senses. Okay. Right. <laughs> so, and you use common sense about like, what's the temperature outside? Um, how, you know, is it stiff? Is rigor mortis set in? How does it look? Are the eyes cloudy? Um, what kind of, you know, uh, 
intact life is around it you know like how does it look and i think you know people who if you train with other folks who know how to identify it that's your your first resource is to just ask the other folks who have done it a bunch is this good but then um as you take more and more i think it's it's sort of an instinctual drive humans you know we know what what food is good um what meat looks good when it's in its original form i truly believe that so it's about honing that sense um and then you can be conservative and just take the hide if you're queasy about how how good the meat is a friend of mine just two weeks ago she uh she was traveling on this curvy highway near our place and she saw a deer on the side of the road a friend with her who was from visiting from the bay area he was like well how do you know it's fresh and she's like watch i'll show you she goes over to the deer puts her hands on its heart right and the thing lifts its head up <laughs> right <laughs> it wasn't dead yeah. it had just been hit so she's like yep this one's fresh um, oh kind of a funny illustration and uh so then she humanely cut its throat and they were able to process it that night so that was a really good find for them wow yeah Word to people, if you do find a roadkill deer or deer and it does stand up on you and you go to cut its throat, one, make sure it's a, a sharp knife, not a dull yeah. knife. Recently, mm -hmm. just witnessed somebody pull out a dull pocket knife and try to do that. And I ended up <laughs> having to grab my knife out of my car and be like, please use this, please. Wow. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's pretty bad. Um, another thing is make sure you go deep enough. So... Mm -hmm. Um, I actually, I believe you even talk about that a little bit in your book because it, it is true. And I've seen that happen too, to where people do not go deep enough with that knife and it's a superficial wound that's bleeding rather than something that actually ends life and bleeds out quickly. Um, yeah. and, and don't you're try causing and, the suffering. Yeah. And don't try and do a heart kill with one cut its throat and get the arteries cut because, um, sometimes you can miss, there's things in the way there. Sometimes if it's gotten hit buy something the guts actually move forward and you pierce the guts and then get a bunch of gross stuff inside mm -hmm. your cavity right that's from personal experience i can tell you that no those I, are all i put really a knife with a gut hook in and pulled it out and guts came out and i was like oh those shouldn't be there oh no yeah it was bad <laughs> Um, yeah, so don't do that. But so, yeah, I do think a lot of people do. In fact, I hit a deer last year on the way to work and called my buddy and said, Hey, I know you're not doing anything today. Go grab that deer. It's fresh. And, uh, mm. he went and salvaged it and actually wrote Luke's deer on it. So every time he took out a package, he'd send me a picture and it'd say Luke's deer when he'd, <laughs> when he'd go to cook it. <laughs> yeah, no, but there's something really righteous and, uh, restorative about that. Like, yeah, it, it's horrible that it died, but. Yeah, it didn't go to waste. So, yeah. yeah. So, um, you started doing the wild crafting slash like primitive skills gatherings first. What drew you to that? I'm kind of curious that like you didn't just be like, oh, let's uh, go learn how to make a basket or let's go to a foraging foray or a walk with somebody or like what drew you to the primitive skill stuff? I think it was uh, getting suggestions from folks I trusted, actually from the permaculture community who were like, well, if you really want to go deeper with this, you mm. got to go to one of these uh, ancestral skills, primitive skills events. And that's, that's where you can become human again <laughs> and learn all the skills that ancient humans had. So that was just really appealing to me. And I um, kind of coming from 
Bay Area tech life, it was kind of the furthest away in terms of lifestyle that I could get that I had ready access to. So I had a friend who was an anthropologist who was like, you need to come and, you know, come with me on my research in Nicaragua. It's going to take you four days to get there and four days to get back. But then you'll really be with some hunter gatherers. And, um, you know, that was just too prohibitive to, to, to go on that kind of adventure, even though that was the lifestyle I wanted to study and immerse myself in. And so I was like, okay, well, what can I do here in the U.S.? And uh, those were the events that I could access without the four days of travel on a river. <laughs> <laughs> I have never been to a primitive skills. Have you, Clay? Uh, yes, I have. Never. I've never experienced that. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, it's pretty fun. They're great. It's fun. Good for kids. I mean, it gives you a break from kind of our, our parenting regime because they literally do just run off in packs and amuse themselves mm -hmm. outside. Maybe your kids are doing that. Um, <laughs> I try, I try to keep them as feral as possible. And I know Clay's kids are pretty freaking feral too. <laughs> <laughs> um, awesome. So we've been to a lot of uh, foragers gatherings, you know, through the years. And then Yoga Fest I used to go to every year. Um, here in northern Michigan. And um, yeah, I can say that it's the same thing as the primitive skills gathering. The kids just run away, run away and you're like, okay, I'll see you in a couple of days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's great. Yeah. You, you should try, Luke. Um, so in the med Midwest, I'm not as familiar with the gatherings. Clay, do you have a recommendation of one to check out? Um, I mean, the Great Lakes Foragers Gathering, I go to almost every year and teach there um nice and that has i think that had like 320 people last year or something um which is pretty big mm -hmm. and there is there is a little bit of primitive skill stuff there but it's um that's mostly foraging yeah. related i've been yeah. to foragers gatherings but i've never been to like a primitive skills where people are sitting around a fire napping or uh, and when I say napping, just so everybody understands, it's flint, flint, flint napping. napping, actually <laughs> yes. making making flakes. Um, and uh, I, I've never seen anything like that, or or you know, hide tanning people doing that, sitting around or mm. whatever. I've experimented a lot on my own and played around and and stuff like that, but never never been in a group. I, I don't know. I don't really have that. Uh, I guess that that tribe thing, and obviously don't want to spoil the book but according to some friends and some research you've done most people can't do it on their own and uh i don't really try and do it all on my own but i do uh i do tend to lone wolf it as much as i possibly can until i absolutely know i need help or something and then hey clay what are you doing what what is this <laughs> what what am i doing here <laughs> you know but yeah but, uh, i try and learn as much as i can on my own before before uh trying to get with other people but i do like that sense of group and like when i do go to foragers gatherings it's cool to see people from all walks of life being there wanting and having that same common interest i find mm -hmm. that you know the outdoors honestly could probably heal most things if people just got together and went for a walk through the woods and talked about things and they could probably talk out most of their problems mm -hmm. absolutely oh my god you just said it it is so healing and the, and the political divides kind of disappear. I I was amazed at the diversity of folks that show up to do yeah like a high tanning workshop or doing the flint napping. Um, you can get you know kind of hippie homesteaders and permaculture folks and Waldorf school people. 
uh, anti-vax, whatever. And then you can also get the hardcore ex-military preppers, <laughs> folks who are libertarian and armed to the teeth, but they're all interested in this self-reliance and self-sufficiency and uh, making use of the materials that they have on hand. And that's where they connect. And that's what I'm talking about. Like our world is so abstracted and we're so bound up in these kind of cultural symbols and um, virtue signaling, right through through all those symbols that it's gotten us really away from what we share uh, in terms of basic human needs and the basic human skills. And I think everybody can get interested in those and see that they're important. So it really doesn't matter, black, white, uh, green, Republican, Democrat, Libertarian. Like, no, we all have to find water, find shelter, make fire, get food. And it's funny how those things fall away too. Once that happens or you're put or immersed in that environment, all of a sudden, mm-hmm. none of that matters anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Um, so. Yep. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was going to ask. Um, so you're into foraging in Northern California. Yes. What 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 kind of uh, things are you finding in Northern California? Because in, in my mind, I've only been in Northern California one time, but all I associate it with is like there's the ocean. And then mm-hmm. there's just like a ton of weed. Don't forget the vineyards. So, so what, what kind of uh, diversity of things are you looking for? Are you mostly going after mushrooms or are you a plant person as well? Yeah. Well, it's the season, right? Like whatever the season is. So mm-hmm. this week I am getting the last of the wild grapes and the last of the blackberries the start of the acorns, um, the start of the mushrooms. We did have early rain here. Usually we don't have any mushrooms coming up in mid-October, but yeah, this is a a really abundant time of year. There's, um, you know, and there's all sorts of volunteers. I live in a, uh, an area that's known for its, its agriculture and orchards. So there's Mm -hmm. so many volunteer apple and walnut trees that just, you know, kind of out in the middle of the woods or figs. Um, this is the, the time of year that we're kind of spoiled. And it's the reason that uh, California had the highest concentration of indigenous tribes uh, pre-conquest, because wow. there is so much food and so many different habitats. Like you're talking about the ocean. So mm-hmm. uh, native native groups that could live there, you know, there's nothing but salmon and mussels and oysters and all sorts of fish and birds. And then you go into um, the foothills and the oak woodlands and then they their main staple is the acorns and processing those and setting them out for winter getting those uh and the berries and the roots and tubers but but because the climate is so mild there's very little dead time when you can't forage you know Mm. um for most of california it's there's always something that you can go out and get so it's an it's a forager's paradise and that's Mm. that's why i love being here despite all the disadvantages of the state um in terms of whatever gas prices, taxes, uh, <laughs> government, all the, the the worldly problems, right? The modern civilization problems. Versus, the Civ, yeah. the Civ yeah, stuff, the Civ yeah. Stuff. Right, but no. In spring, spring is also so fun because the abundant greens, um, you know, and the just incredible variety of medicinal herbs that come up in the forest mm-hmm. that are natural. So I just I love to. I keep kind of a, a jar of dried green stuff uh, in my kitchen. I'm always just making sure I've got something for, for a aromatic tea. 
not that I can subsist on that, but you're in, but when you ingest the wild, I feel like it's sort of, a, it's a spiritual thing. Just like when you're hunting, you ingest that animal, you're becoming part of the landscape. And so for me, it's important to, to do that as much as I can. Absolutely. And wild tending, right? I mean, um, you know, yeah. taking or doing something to actually help benefit that in the relationship that we've all had, or I should say our, all of our ancestors had with, uh, mm-hmm. <clears throat> different plants and orchards and, sections of timber and different things that they burn to keep it a certain way. Uh, that's super important. And we've definitely gotten away from that as well. And you talked about the, you know, taking out the invasive species. I think that is like kind of the primo or the primo strategy for us as foragers right now, like recently um, started making a lot of stuff out of blackberry vine because that is such an abundant uh natural material in my area and all over the Pacific Northwest and even on the East coast, these uh, Himalayan blackberries have just taken over similar to uh kudzu vine. Do you have mm. kudzu out there? Anyway, no, East coast. Yeah. Anytime the wild boar that you were talking about, I mean, anytime we can um, harvest and benefit and flourish from taking an invasive species, we're also making the ecosystem more resilient and creating more space for those natives. So I think that's a win-win and it's a great thing to do. So Jessica, I'm kind of curious though, um, what, what are you most looking forward to in your, your progression or your journey of your rewilding? Like what's the next big thing? Is it the hunting that we talked about with your bow? Yeah, you hit it. I mean, I just, I I love this idea of, uh, mastering, not mastering, (laughs) gaining some sufficiency in archery, uh, and the bow hunting. I think that's, that's really exciting. And then you know, I sort of have this pet project of replacing a lot of my industrial goods with uh, natural ones. And so it's just really exciting to me anytime I can make something new that, you know, I used to order from Amazon or get at Target. And now it's like, okay, I have a wooden spoon instead of a plastic spoon. And uh, <laughs> anytime that happens, I'm I'm really excited because then it's like, ah, getting more self-sufficient, getting less dependent. Yep. I totally get that. I get made fun of a lot because I'll spend twice as much money to buy the tools to make something versus just going out and buying it. And it drives my wife nuts. I've got shelves full of bins of stuff in the basement that are, uh, you know, wood, wood carving, uh, whatever for carving spoons or using uh-huh. certain knives or, and then I got into leather working and it's just like it progressed. And I mean, but anything I can do and I can learn that skill and be able to uh-huh. do it. Why wouldn't I do that? Why why would somebody I don't understand that logic either. Why would somebody go and go out and buy a holster when you can learn how to make one and then you can make one for everything you have versus whatever or a sheath for a knife? Well, cuz they don't know how. <laughs> well, I think there's a lot of barriers to entry, right? I mean, <laughs> I think our uh education system needs to change and we need to teach totally. kids survival skills before we teach algebra. Yeah. So what do you, I mean, what are you most looking forward to with the stuff you're going to build? Like, what are you going to make? Oh man. Um, okay. Well, I can open up my little notebook here and show the long list. Um, no, I really, I also want to learn to work with, um, like pole construction. So getting away from, um, engineered lumber, which I find is kind of irritating to me because like there's all these beautiful logs around. I live in a forest and mm-hmm. I want to learn how to build with those. Um, and enjoying or whatever the the construction is but leaving it a raw edge um not having to use the precise dimensions that kind of thing i'm I'm excited about that and then building furniture from that um 
and, uh, you know, kind of building out a camp. I have, uh, I'm really lucky to have access to a Creek. And so I want to have a summer camp that's primitive down there that I can take kids and visitors and guests and do workshops down there. So basically just like kind of building, working with the land, um, making trails and all of that I find to be so much more satisfying than writing <laughs> at this moment. I'm really <laughs> glad I wrote a book, but wow, is that a struggle? Um, and it, I, I'm, I'm happier doing stuff with my hands outside now. Nice. So um, <laughs> before we go, Jessica, can you tell everybody where they can find you, find your book, all those awesome things? Yeah. So the book is available where books are sold. I think pretty much every online outlet and a lot of bookstores and libraries have Why We Need to Be Wild. And I'm on Instagram at Why We Need to Be Wild. Where else? That's where I've been hanging out the most, you know, because it's not my favorite habitat, the digital landscape. But if <laughs> I'm going to go somewhere, it's it's there. And then I always love to connect with people personally. So on my website, which is jessicacarewcraft.com, uh, I have a, an offering where people can sign up to talk to me in 15-minute segments. If you're curious about rewilding, foraging, or even writing a book, um, I just love to expand my community that way. That's awesome. Yep. Thank you so much for coming on. Hey. Thank you. Yeah, you guys really are so much it. fun. Great. Me too. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you can check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenged.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show. Thank you.